All right. Good evening, Praxis. I am your host for the evening. The worst part about wearing a mask while singing is that all the humidity, right? You know, that's just kind of like the worst part of it all. I look forward to the day where we can worship again without having masks, right? Okay, so with that, sorry, getting organized here. My wife calls me a man of many hobbies, many diversions, a leisure man, if you will, just because of all my leisure activities. Um, and one of the things I like to do is I like working on my house. I like building things. Um, I like building tools so I can build other tools so that maybe someday I might actually do something on the house and so forth. But I like tools. Um, I enjoy um, having, go, I, you know what I'll do is I'll just go down to Home Depot or Lowe's, you know, and I'll just wander the aisles looking for stuff to buy. Like, oh, drill bits, right? Ooh, maybe I need another, maybe I need another 5,000 staples. Um, <laughs> Maybe I could use this, whatever it is. But anyway, I like tools. And so we were going to do show and tell because that's what old people do, right? They come and they, they go to your grandparents' house, right? And then they pull out all the little tchotchkes they've gathered over the years. And they tell you stories about that. So, well, I'm going to tell you stories. I can't tell you about how much joy I had when I was able to get an air compressor and a nail gun. All right? And this isn't even a real nail gun. This is really a Brad gun for those of you out there who know what it means. Central Pneumatic, Harbor Freight, awesome stuff because you can buy all these tools really cheap. Awesome, right? Right, good. Um, there are other tools um, that are kind of very single purpose. So like, there's this thing. You're like, what is this thing? This is a, an OBD reader, OBD2, I believe, not even a, a recent one. This was actually pretty old. You plug this into the car, and you can find out what your car's computer is saying to you about what's broken, what's not broken. You can go and reset lights and all that kind of stuff. Useful, handy thing. But it's really only one purpose, which is diagnose what's wrong with your car. Then there's another tool that I got here. You're looking at this thing, and it's, this has got only one purpose in life. Exactly one purpose. Does anybody know what this is? Anyone seen it? It's a jig to drill holes in cabinet doors. The cabinet door that I'm going to build after I'm done building all the tools to build that cabinet door, but I've already got the jig, right? That's all it does. It drills a hole to a particular depth so that you can put hinges in the door, mounted in the cabinet. Everything will open and work quick, well. Then there are other tools. Those are kind of more single-purpose tools. They only have kind of one purpose in life, diagnose things, drill one particular hole. But there are other tools that are more useful, a little more general purpose. Uh, this was my grandfather's ruler. You can kind of tell. Uh, measuring things, right? Do measure many different things with it. Um, and so forth. And a more modern variant, tape measure. A construction square, right? That's very useful, measuring a lot of things, making right angles. And then, of course, the ubiquitous screwdriver. Very general purpose, right? These tools are useful. They're multitaskers because you can use them for a lot of different things, right? Screwdrivers are really good because not only, not only can you screw screws in, right? Um, you can also use it to pry things apart, right? or to get leverage on things, or when you're really angry, right? Pound on something, try to get it open. One mantra in organizing your workshop is to not have too many single taskers, and instead have tools that have a wide variety of purposes, many uses, and it can be applied to many different situations. So now, here comes the speed bump to where we transition to our message tonight. What does this have to do with faith? 
what, is this, what do tools and multitaskers and single taskers have to do with faith? Well, when I say faith to you, when I say, what is your faith? We often, uh, oftentimes will understand faith to be the easy button into heaven. That is, without faith, it would be impossible for any of us to get there by any other means. It's got a single purpose. And its single purpose is to get us into heaven, right? I mean, let's be honest. That's how I feel sometimes. For many of us, most of the time, we see faith is really that single purpose tool, the thing that gets us eternity, the thing that buys us what we really need. But I contend, contorted illustrations aside, that there are wider applications of faith beyond your own salvation. We will see tonight that these other purposes that faith accomplishes, and we will also see and continue to see through Paul's letter to us what those purposes are. In an ever-widening circle of influence, we'll see that faith governs the person, we'll see that faith forms the church, and we'll see that faith is the means by which God enters into the world. What we'll see in our study tonight is faith is the engine of righteousness. Faith is the foundation of the kingdom. Faith is the primary channel of blessing to the world. Or to put it in terms of our outline tonight, faith is personal. Faith is foundational. Faith is missional. Let us turn to Romans chapter 4. Our passage tonight is in verses 9 through 17. And I'll read that for us. Paul writes, Is this blessing then only for the circumcised, or also for the uncircumcised. For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without without being circumcised, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well, and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherence of, of the law who are to be the heirs, Faith is null, and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, and where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations, in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Let's commit this time to prayer. Father, we thank you for this evening. And Father, we invite you now to open our hearts to your word, to hear your truth. We pray, Father, for discernment. We pray, Father, for wisdom. We pray, Father, that we would look beyond the messenger to hear your message. Father, just speak to us tonight. Allow your spirit to move among us. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Last week, Alan introduced to us the truth that Abraham was justified not by his works, but by his faith. The truth is, that truth is the foundation of our salvation. For it is that, that faith that justifies us before God, not works. 
Though through Alan's message, we saw first the blueprint of faith, that through faith in God, Abraham was considered righteous. This was the blueprint for salvation, right? The blueprint of faith is that at the moment of belief, not later after he had done some works, but at the moment of belief, salvation was complete. Justification was through faith at the moment of faith. Next, we saw the betterment of faith, the betterment of faith, that faith secures the blessings of righteousness in contrast to works that only secures punishment. Instead of fearing punishment through imperfect works, because we weren't able to complete the works imperfectly, we can look forward to increasing sanctification and experience of God's blessings, and that comes through faith. Last, we saw the blessings of faith, the blessings of faith. Paul, here, Paul used King David to show us that those who have faith are therefore forgiven by God and are therefore blessed. And that is the greatest blessing, to have forgiveness, to have fellowship with God. It is in this that we see Paul laying out the great doctrine of what we have called justification by faith. That by faith in God, God then declares us right before him and our debt paid. Like a judge in a courtroom, we are declared just before God. Last week's passage focused on an individual and our own relationship to God through faith. And Paul used the example of Abraham to illustrate this. He is also addressing differences between Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians working to church together, right? That was kind of one of the big controversies of the day. Paul's trying to resolve the differences between Jew and Gentile believers alike. And it is into this context that we arrive at tonight's passage, which is a continuation of Paul's use of Abraham's example to the Jewish and Gentile believers in the Roman church, that the intent for salvation is through faith and not by any work. As we saw last week, Abraham was declared righteous by God because Abraham believed God. And that brings us to our first point. Faith is personal. Faith is personal. I'm afraid this first point probably is going to be a little bit redundant um, tonight. Um, Well, we're going to plow ahead anyway. Faith is personal because it is the engine of righteousness for each one of us. Your justification before God, as we learned last week, is based entirely upon your faith in God. And Paul shows us the proof of this in tonight's passage. Having just laid out the matter, and as a good teacher he is, he poses a question. And he asks this, is the blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? Is it only for the Jews, the circumcised, or is it also for the Gentile, those who are uncircumcised? You have to remember at this time, one of the controversies between the Jews and the Gentile Christians is whether or not Gentile Christians should be circumcised, should practice Jewish religious practices, just as the Jewish Christians were. Thank God for all of us that Paul won the argument and that circumcision is not required. Paul asks in verse 9, in short, will the blessings of faith come only to the Jews or will it also come to the Gentiles? And while circumcision is the one work that Paul singles out here, it really represents the entirety of all the Jewish religious practices. Circumcision was obviously very personal, but circumcision was a very apparent and obvious mark of who was Jewish and who was not. Those who were blessed by Yahweh and those who were not. Paul is laying the foundation for the proof that these works represented by the ultimate work in circumcision are unnecessary to secure the blessings of faith. 
In answering this, Paul again points to Abraham in verse 9. Faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. This is a reference back to Genesis chapter 15, where the Lord God makes his covenant to Abraham, who then was still called Abram. And the Lord God says this, and these, in, in Genesis 15, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram questions God in this. And he says, but Abram said, oh, Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless. And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. That is somebody else of his family would actually inherit um, all of his reward. And Abraham said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look towards heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord. And he counted it to him as righteousness. Paul continues in verse 10. How then was this righteousness counted to Abram? How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he was circumcised? And this is really just a simple matter of math. Genesis chapter 15, the promise is laid out. Circumcision is described in Genesis chapter 17. And for everybody here, we hopefully understand that 15 comes before 17. So circumcision was prescribed and prescribed to the Jews after Abram, Abram was already um, declared righteous. Therefore, according to Paul in verse 11, therefore, according to Paul in verse 11, he says, he received the sign of circumcision as a seal, as a sign of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The work of circumcision is simply just a demonstration of the faith that Abraham already had. Paul says this in verse 11. Let's face it. If circumcision was the work that we had to have in order to be saved, how many of us would be saved, right? Yeah, I would probably have to say maybe not. It's kind of one of those things. I'm not sure if I would want to cross that bridge. It takes great faith. It takes great faith to do something like that. Faith already possessed by Abraham. Let's talk about, a, let's, talk, let's, let's turn a little bit, talk about a few words on growing in faith. C.S. Lewis distinguishes faith as having two parts. According to Lewis, the first type of faith is belief. Having faith is having belief, a sense of truth. When our faith is shaken, when we have doubts, Lewis recognizes that our faith is not shifting because God has changed, because the truth has shifted, but because our moods, our emotions, our feelings, our desires, our situations are causing us to shift. You get that? It's pretty subtle. That is, growing our faith is a matter, according to Lewis, that one must train the habit of faith by recognizing that it is us who's shifting and not God. And battling those moods, those desires, those temptations that cause us doubt. In doing so, and in doing so, returning to understanding the truth that we had accepted before in that, the convictions that we had. One example of this might be one day we feel strongly aligned towards our church, the people in our small group, the people maybe even in this fellowship. But we go home, some things happen, 
Maybe you have some relationship issues with friends, or maybe nobody calls you during the week, or maybe somebody said something at the last small group that kind of really set you off, and we feel out of sorts. We feel distant. We no longer feel affinity with those brothers and sisters we felt so close to the week before. Has the God that underlined that underlies our community changed? Has the truth actually shifted? Or has our feeling towards that truth shifted? It is our changing desires that we feel slighted by somebody. It is our changing desires, our temptations, to blame somebody else for how we feel. God has not changed. He has always been present and working through imperfect people in the church. What has changed, though, is our feelings towards that. Last week, Alan wrote that such, or Alan spoke and said that faith should produce in us the expectation of nothing, that there is nothing we can do to earn God's favor or righteousness on our own. This is the second kind of faith Lewis talks about. It is the faith that trusts in and understands God and understands our place in relationship to him and understands that our confidence is not in ourself or in how we feel or in the things that we can do but our confidence is entirely in our God. That is the second kind of faith. C.S. Lewis continues to write in Mere Christianity that this kind of faith understands every faculty you have, your power of thinking or of moving your limbs from moment to moment is given you by God. That is the second kind of faith. This dependence upon on God does not produce weakness in a niece, but rather confidence because we can trust in something else other than ourselves. Once we come to experience how God is able to bring about his own plans through the imperfections of the people around us, or even through ourselves, we grow our faith in seeing our powerful God. We've just examined the practicality and purpose of faith at an individual level, all right? That it is very personal that it does save us, and that there are dimensions of growth in our faith that we can examine. And, and, and to remind ourselves, we often think that faith is personal, and it's just basically our easy button into heaven, but there is more to it than that. And this is where we're going to turn to next, in our next mess, point in the message. I would argue that faith is not just personal, and it doesn't just apply to each one of us individually, but that there's a community aspect of faith, and that we will explore that next. Faith is foundational. Faith is foundational. Faith is foundational in that the faith that form, it, is the, it is faith that forms the foundation of the church. Well, of course you say. It's plainly obvious. We all believe the same thing, right? Therefore, we're all kind of part of the same church. Here in this room and in the larger church on Sunday, we all, have, we all believe the same thing. Therefore, right, we're all part of the same church. But if you observe and look around, even at churches outside of Lighthouse, are we unified with those churches as well? Do we believe the same as uh, many other churches in the South Bay? You might think that if we really were found on the same belief, on the same faith, that the church would look a lot more unified than happens today. There are denominations. There are controversies between denominations. There are denominations that split up. There are people that come and go from the church because of the way the church do our church does certain things. Perhaps we feel a bit disunited from one another simply because we see these things. And just as we said that faith is a personal matter, so we need to see how faith applies in the operation of the church. Paul, Romans chapter 4, shows us that there's a purpose 
Abraham's faith has saved him, that there's a purpose to this faith. We read in the second half of verse 11 this, the purpose of Abraham's faith was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. So as we see, Abraham serves as the father, the model, the first one who believed in God so that even the Gentiles might believe in the same way. It wasn't merely so that just Abraham's faith wasn't so that the Jews were saved. It's so that those who were uncircumcised would also be saved. Abraham's model applies to all alike, Gentile and Jew. Paul says the relationship to Abraham applies to those without circumcision, that is the Gentile believers, and it applies to those with the circumcision, verse 12, the Jewish believers within the church. The purpose of righteousness by faith, according to Paul, is to make him, that is Abraham, the father of the circumcised, who are not merely circumcised, but also who walk in the footsteps of faith. So Paul is very clear. There are those who are circumcised. There are those who are uncircumcised. The faith that saved Abraham saves both groups and makes them equal. And he's very clear in verse 12 to make sure that the Jews are reminded that they're not saved by their works. They're saved by their faith. The model for Jewish Christians equals the model for the Gentile Christians. They are one and the same. They are equal. They all share the same faith. No matter the works that they have done, they are part of the same family of God. Now, we might think such matters of Jews versus Gentiles is not really an issue these days in the modern church. After all, we've advanced ourselves 2,000 years since then. I might suggest that if we feel ourselves as a church beyond division, right? We pointed out some examples earlier. But I might say that we might have fallen into sort of a, a chronological snobbery where we make the assumption that technological advancement means that we have somehow risen to moral superiority over those from history. We might think we have advanced, but if you look at the world around, we might have won some progress against disease. We might have allowed technology to make our lives easy. But our means, that same technology, has allowed us to develop even more efficient means of killing one another. We might tisk at the beheading of John the Baptist because some girl danced in front of him, Matthew chapter 14. But we barely notice the moral excesses that some of the elites in Hollywood, the news media, our political class, and yes, even our leaders in church exhibit. We might assume we are beyond the racism exhibited by Jews against Gentiles and vice versa. But we seem to overlook our own ways and within our own church, we have divided ourselves over far more trivial things. Paul points out a truth here that with a common father in the faith, Abraham, professing Christians, no matter the differences in culture, in doctrine, church organization, or ministry focus, we are all from the same common faith. God is one, and so the church based on that one God is also one. I will caveat this a bit, of course, with noting that there are theological differences that do matter when you stray into issues of heresy. Those, there are some um, do, um, churches that don't believe in the divinity of Christ, that believe that we ourselves are divine, that we will rise to someday be di as divine as God is, and so forth and so on. It does take some discernment to, discern, to understand what those differences in doctrine are, which truly should divide us, and those that should not. But I'll leave that to Chris 
and Alan to explain to you. There are many differences in doctrine that divide us more than they ought. While we may not regularly fellowship with those churches that teach and promote spiritual gifts, or at least wondrous spiritual gifts, healings, tongues, and so forth, or those churches that have women pastors, does that exclude us from having fellowship with them? Does that exclude us from finding ways that we could minister somehow with a common purpose together as a church in Christ? While we may not like a particular preaching emphasis a pastor makes or appreciate his speaking style, or we don't like his or her humor, should we not also consider them ministers of the gospel of Christ? Do we pray for mega churches or tiny house churches? Or do we only look down at one or the other because of the way we, our own particular, I guess, particular bents are about, those, about what a church should be like? Do we still wish for them to flourish for the gospel? Do we see members from a different congregation as a child of God or just somebody who kind of is a Christian but maybe has a lesser truth or not fully mature? Do we treat one another as we really have a common God? To come to a place of unity within such a diverse church is not an easy thing. We must understand the nature of church unity in the face of such differences. And we can look no further than 1 Corinthians chapter 12 for this. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 12 through 14, is a passage that speaks about how the body of Christ, individual believers, come together to work and minister with one another. Paul's teaching in this passage is that individual members look different. They're gifted differently. We have different bents, different personalities, but that together we form this awesome unity in our difference because we have a common purpose and that we all have different roles. And the key to Paul's message in Corinthians 12 is that we have to accept that there will be differences and we need to actually celebrate those things. Paul says in Corinthians chapter 12, verses 12 through 14, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but many. We are united by one spirit. We are filled by the same Spirit. The moment I was saved, it's the same Spirit. The moment I was saved, I was filled with the same Spirit that you were filled with many decades later when you were saved. The Spirit that powers praxis here is the same Spirit that powers the missionary pilot in Papua New Guinea. The Spirit that inhabits the mega church and creates masses of people to come worship together in Orange County is the same Spirit that inhabits and empowers a secretive house church under persecution in China. We are all part of the same universal church. And if we were to apply 1 Corinthians 12, we are all inhabited by the same spirit. Do we honor that spirit by honoring those churches that are different than us? Closer to home, here in Praxis. The same spirit fills each one of us with this commonality. And this, this must fill us with trust. This must lead us to trust into, in a God that is working sovereignly with one another and through one another. When I was younger in faith and years, my spiritual pride got in the way of me finding unity in the spirit with people, other people in my church. Some others around me didn't share the same practices, the same convictions, the same doctrinal positions or means of service and even prayers. 
They looked different personality-wise, and I did not honor them well. In reality, what I mistook as compromise and weakness was in reality the Spirit empowering them with wisdom of age, a dedication to work as if for the Lord, them having a different in this, difference in this demeanor and a different mission. I had neglected to understand that the Spirit was working in them as well, as much as he was working in me. I did not have the faith that God works mightily through imperfection and differences. Let's face it. You and I, we find it difficult to relate to one another. It takes a lot of energy to relate or understand the difficulties. Our personalities oftentimes do not mesh easily. Our youthful actions cause others a lifetime of disrespect to us. We are often misunderstood we often misunderstand one another's actions, or maybe we don't quite respect one another's choices. I could go on, but for your sake, and really mine, let's stop. The sticky thing about all this, though, is this. We're getting baptized together. We share a small group. We come to this large group of fellowship. We worship and sing together. You and I might have to listen to some schmo on a Thursday night. Now, while we might share this one or two hours together, and we might think that's where the common stuff ends, just spending time together. The reality is we have an even deeper commonality in the one faith. We ought to rejoice in our differences and how weird and strange we are to one another and not shy away because of them. But those differences should pale in comparison to the unity found in the spirit of God that fills us. When God triumphs over our misgivings and shortcomings, he is glorified. When we put aside what we find uncomfortable, difficult, or onerous to do in order that we might find some small way that we can minister with one another in some more truer, more loving, then God is triumphant. In the midst of speaking of the gifts of the Spirit, Paul throws in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. It's a passage about love. We all know it. We've had it read at weddings. I had it read at my weddings. My wedding. Weddings, sorry, not plural. <laughs> Singular Steph. <laughs> Only one. But it's a long and great passage about love. And why does Paul implant love in the middle of all this when he talks about gifts of the Spirit? Then he talks about love. And he talks about exercising the gifts again. It's because love drives all that. Love is patient and kind, says Paul. Love does not envy and boast. It is not arrogant and rude. Or rude, so on and so on and so on. Do we love? Do we have the spirit to love? Do we have the trust in God that he is working within and through each one of us, that we have the humility to accept that God will do so and work in each, uh, the other person on his own time? We have to accept that we are part of his purposes and part of our, our, his, our, his purpose for us is to go and love the weird and strange and put in the hard work. You know, the, the, the most insidious thing about social media is that it gives you the illusion of connectedness. It gives you the illusion that because you have a large number of likes, that because our re people are retweeting or relinking to you several times, that somehow you have made a difference in the world. Social media confuses quantity with real fellowship, real connectedness. We oftentimes strive to be that popular person, to have the huge number of followers. I admit it. When I was on Facebook for a while, I wanted a lot of followers. I wanted a lot of friends. I wanted a lot of connections. But we have to look beyond this. 
God may have called you to love one person in all your life. God may have called you to only have two friends altogether. But if they're deep and abiding relationships, if you are able to minister to that one or two people in your lifetime, how much of a difference have you made? Eternal difference. Praxis, strive to go deep. Do not strive for shallowness. The mark of true fellowship is described in 1 Corinthians 12, 26. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. This is love fueled by faith. So I ask you, do you suffer when others suffer? And I also ask, do you rejoice when others rejoice? I know and I am encouraged by each one of you. I see very different kinds of people getting together. They talk, you guys talk on Thursday nights. You go and find ways to go out. You find ways to care for another. As you attest by your actions, God is bigger than the jealousies we harbor for one another, our occasional disagreements, or our um, unwillingness to be generous. I I see hospitality. I see people trying to help. And while it's not perfect, and while there are still people I feel like they're being left behind, I still see how you are continuing to grow and strive to grow in these areas. Keep pushing forward, Praxis. If you're comfortable with your group of people, then I challenge you and I suggest go figure out ways to be uncomfortable a little bit. Take some time. Go find somebody else who's going to make you feel weird. Faith is foundational to our church. Without the common faith, the Jews and the Gentiles will not have come together to form the church that we are part of today. Likewise, without a common faith, we are just a group that looks just like a combination of the Elks Club, part sorority, part fraternity, a sometimes charitable organization with a penchant for going on short vacations together, but at any moment at risk of fraying over some social slight. Instead, we are bound together by something far stronger than social bonds. We are bound by the Holy Spirit of God to be his kingdom on this earth, longing for eternity, willing to overlook one another's differences and the slights from us, others, urging each other on so that we may call each other into God's presence. This is a big call. It is tough. It is hard to hear. It's hard for me to speak because I look and I condemn myself as well. But it is our mission. Now, let's move on to our last point. We're going to talk about mission. Faith is missional. Faith is personal. It is foundational to the church. It is now also missional. We've discussed discussed how faith is personal to the individual. We have looked at how faith underlies, undergirds, and builds what the church is built on. And next we turn to how faith is missional. That is, faith has an outward dimension. Paul says this in Romans 4, 13 through 17. The promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be heirs, faith is null. And the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring. Not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all, as it is written, I have made you the father of many nations, in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. There's a long section. 
And we're going to break down a little bit of pieces here and there. Paul's letter here is referencing the promise made by God to Abraham in Genesis chapter 17, verses 4 through 6. And here the Lord says, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and the king and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. Paul's arguing if the descendants of Abraham had to obey the law to participate in the covenant that the Lord made with Abraham, then the promise is void. That is, if faith, if excuse me, the covenant depended on adherence to the law, what the Lord promised to them could not, have been, could not have been given because the law brings wrath. That is, the descendants could not have kept up their end of the bargain because the descendants of Abraham could not have obeyed the law perfectly. That's the standard, perfect obedience to the law. The best way to say this is if the covenant really was contingent on obedience, no Jew could ever be included in the covenant because the law was impossible to keep. The law highlights the transgressions of the people. Paul says, where there is no law, there is no transgression. If there is a speeding limit and you are going 60 in a 55-mile-an-hour zone, you're breaking the law. But if you're on the Autobahn where there is no, where there is no um, speed limit, and going 60, actually, is not going fast enough. The moment that the law is defined is the moment that we become transgressors. So Paul concludes in his verse, this is why it, that is the covenant, God's covenant with his people, depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace. In order that the gift that God gives to them comes freely. Faith is required so that the Lord in his grace can give them the covenantal promise that they had been given, to be heirs of the world. Now, Abraham later in life asked the Lord to, was asked by the Lord to sacrifice his son Isaac, which Abraham in his faith proceeds to make preparations for to the point of binding up his son and raising his knife in preparation. God halts Abraham's hand and pronounces a blessing upon him, as recorded in Genesis chapter 22, verses 17 through 18. Based on Abraham's faith in God, the Lord states, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven as, uh, and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. That's the other part of the covenant. Not only that Abraham would be the father of many nations, but also that those nations would be the channel through which God brings blessing to the world. This is where faith is missional. The faith of Abraham was the beginning of a family formed by faith that, would become a, that should be become a blessing through which many others would benefit. That has been God's intention from the very beginning, that the kingdom of God present in his people through faith and later extending through his people here in the church through faith would be the means by which God would bless the world. 
would be the means by which the world would come to know him. The church is the vehicle God uses to provide spiritual and physical relief to the world. First, the church blesses others through witnessing the gospel to them. That is the primary means of blessing, right? That is the most valuable thing we can give people is the gospel. The church needs to give others an eternal hope, eternal life. That comes through the gospel. The church is also the means through which God can also provide physical help. Physical help. We, as the church, we're called oftentimes to go and help take care of people, take care of the orphans and the widows, to reach the downtrodden, to take care of the poor. We are called to be salt in the world, a light to the nations, by the words of the gospel and the deeds of our hands. The application of this is wide and deep, and I can't go into it because we don't have so much time. I, of course, that means I have to leave it to Alan and Chris to explain it to you. Today, I will say this, though. Today, there are many, way, many who say our society is unjust and unfair, to which I would agree. Many would also desire to create a situation where justice is handed out. But... They would desire to create this justice by essentially punishing the descendants of those who caused the original justice. More concretely, calls for writing injustice would require, also require an additional injustice to be done against the people who are presently innocent of any crime. We must ask ourselves, though, this question in this situation. Are we really solving the problem? Or are we simply perpetuating a cycle of injustice whose bill we are only delaying for our descendants to pay? When the Old Testament speaks of the sins of the fathers being visited upon the third and fourth generations, the first order interpretation is, my father's imperfections affect me. You know, my father didn't communicate really well. I don't communicate really well because I didn't learn really well from him. Therefore, you know, I'm going to pass that on to my son and so forth and so on, right? That's kind of the first order interpretation of that, the sins of the father being passed on to the third and fourth generations. But there is also this, that the sins of the father, the consequences of that sin is passed on to the third and fourth generations. While scripture doesn't speak much about how that is resolved, at least at that point in the Old Testament, it's simply stating the truth that oftentimes we suffer injustice today because of what our forefathers did. But I ask, and I return to this, in correcting the sins of our fathers, are we then creating even more problems for others? So where is faith in this? How does faith apply? Christ and the church offer an answer to this. The answer is this, that the breaking of such a cycle of injustices will require gospel-fueled forgiveness. A willingness for those who suffer the consequences, consequences of injustice to themselves forgive. This kind of forgiveness is impossible for men, men because the horizon of man is a mortal life outside of which there can be no balancing of the scales of justice. This life is all there is and therefore justice must be made right in this life and it must be made fair for those who only have this life to live. I would wager many of us struggle with this concept. What makes forgiveness possible in this situation is rooted in the gospel. 
the hope that the church can offer, that God offers to all. As God has forgiven each one of us of our cosmic injustice against God through the death of Christ and our faith in him, so might we also have the power to forgive others. What does Christ say? Forgive as you have also been forgiven. In 2018, police officer Amber Geiger mistakenly entered her neighbor's apartment and thinking him to be an intruder, her neighbor, shot 26-year-old Botham Jean to death. She was convicted and sentenced. And as many of you might have heard, it does still bear repeating. Botham Jean's brother, Brant Jean, spoke at her sentencing, and he said this, I love you just like anyone else, and I'm not going to say I hope you rot and die just like my brother did, but I personally want the best for you. And I wasn't going to ever say this in front of my family or anyone, but I don't want you to go to jail. I want the best for you because I know that's exactly what Botham would want you to do. And the best would be give your life to Christ. I'm not going to say anything else. I think giving your life to Christ would be the best thing that Botham would want you to do. Again, I love you as a person, and I don't wish anything bad on you. He tearfully concluded. He then proceeded to give her a hug. This man, who with every earthly right to be filled with hatred and desire for retribution, something that we would never have really, you know, said that was wrong. Instead, he was fueled by faith and an understanding of things far more weighty and important than justice on this earth for even his own brother. Here's a man who keenly feels the worth of a soul and his own need for the gospel. Here's a man who knows the gospel far better than I can comprehend. What else can feel this kind of forgiveness? Jesus Christ. Last week, Alan spoke to us about how faith is a blessing to the individual, but extends much further than our own selves. There's a larger purpose to faith in that God enables the believer to be a blessing to others. If we don't see that our faith is for God's purposes to fulfill his desires on this earth, uh, to all nations on this earth, under his banner on this earth, then we are selfishly hiding what was meant to be a blessing to many. We studied tonight three things. That faith is personal. That it, faith is foundational. That faith is missional. It is personal in that faith applies to each one of us. That faith is required for us in order to be justice, just, just before God. Faith is foundational for the church in that it is a common bond amongst all believers, no matter the denominational stripe or how weirdly, wildly diverse and varied we are. Faith you have now. Faith you share with your believing family. Faith you have with your fellowship friends. The Chinese evangelical hiding in the house church. The English vicar. The Christian Afghani refugee. The Southern Baptist in Alabama. You share faith with all of them. The one spirit. Faith is missional because it is the means by which the entire world might be blessed, primarily through the gospel, but also through our works and deeds of our hands. We do these things that others might enter into the joy of an eternity with their creator, that we might be able to fellowship with them, not just for a few years, but for all eternity. And I ask you, Praxis, where is your faith? Is it personal? Do you find it foundational to your experience here at church? 
Are you using it to fuel your mission to the world? Let's close this time in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. It cuts like a sword. We ask, Father, that you would lay us bare before yourself to teach us what you might have us, to reveal to us our weaknesses, but also to be encouraged by the power that you give to us and to be encouraged by one another. We ask, Father, for um, an ability, a desire, or strength to challenge the things that keep us from being able to boldly share and go. Father, we thank you for this evening. We look forward to how you might be speaking to us through the small groups. And we pray this in the name of your son, Jesus, who saves us all from our sins. Amen.